The following podcast is set in a quarantine New York City. As such, some of the language and much of the content is intended for mature audiences. Consider yourself warned. You are listening to the confessions of Conrad Patrick McGowan, former governor of the Lower Downtown. Texts of these confessions are also on display in the lobbies of Stuyvesant Town, buildings 7 and 9. McGowan stands accused of conspiring with the Protective Custody Agency and being an instrumental player in luring our brethren into the repatriation massacre. He has chosen to remain in the quarantine to plead his case, but has been stripped of his citizenship. The squatters, you are his judge and jury, and he awaits your verdict. Banishment, beheading, or restoration are your options. Welcome back to New York City. Population 107,363. Decline and fall of all y'all. Episode 3. As it should happen, All of this began where it ended up, Union Square. This is nearly a year ago, a late summer day that was hot from the get-go. I was up at the farm doing my quote-end-quote inspections, which meant shopping. The farm was just out of my district, but as governor of the lower downtown, I was accorded the privilege of freely roaming with a couple of bags. It was less for me than the leverage I might get out of it. Fresh raspberries went a long way to impress a guest or win a concession. New York might be quarantined, it might be decimated to 100,000 or so people, but access remained essential. Something simple like a raspberry had replaced the cachet square footage once got you. All of which meant that the farm was guarded around the clock, and by guarded I mean machine gun toting thugs every 10 yards and sentry towers surveying the spread. My bodyguard, yeah, I had a bodyguard. My bodyguard, a Russian named Nonek, had refused to join me on the farm, probably to a feet for him. He sat brooding on the southern edge of the farm, periodically cutting me looks to keep an eye on me for my protection and shoot some disdain my way. He had a shaved head and yes, he had a neck, though there was a tattoo running across it that said, no neck. I had asked him about it once and he stared at me balefully for a few moments. No neck. It says I have no neck. In any case, raspberries were just not tough enough for him, so he was guarding my body from a manly distance. It's not like I actually needed a bodyguard. Not yet, anyway. I laid my hands on some melons, beginning to break a sweat, though it wasn't even nine in the morning. My sack was nearly full, and I was moving to the barn when the bells sounded. My first thought was that there'd been a thief somewhere on the farm. Not uncommon for some street urchin to make a run for some fruit. But the bells were more jingle than alarm. 
high-pitched, frenzied, and distant, though closing in. The bells got closer, and now I realized that they were bridal bells. That meant the heralds were dispatched from Roosevelt Island by the GNG. The heralds rode police horses that had been rounded up after the quarantine was established. While there was probably an easier way to get the word to us, there was not more of a romantic one. And this, after all, was the cultural coin we traded in. The heralds played it up. Flowing white shirts, long black capes, and stovetop hats with the band strapped tightly under the chin. Heralds had been an unusual sight lately. Remember, this was towards the end of the Great Lull, and any news, much less breaking news, was scarce. The Herald's saddlebags were packed with broadsheets that would deliver us from that. Gotta be bad news was my first thought. The rumor during that first week of the Great Lull was that the Lenapes were considering packing up shop. Now, the bridal bells were bringing the rumors to life. The Lenapes had grown tired of their costly Manhattan holdings. My heart sank, my palms got clammy. The fact that the farm guards had abandoned their posts at all was cause for alarm. A half dozen stood out on Park Avenue looking north. Suddenly, they scattered, jumping up on the raised medium strip of the Herald's tour into the square in full gallop. A dark blur of pure animal power. I watched the one on the east as his black cape whipped out behind him. Pumped fists into his saddlebag, pulled out the broadsheets, and let them fly, never once slowing his pace. The pages rose in the draft, whipped around in the wake of the horse, and then landed gently on the ground. The Herald was already well below 14th Street by the time I reached the trail of broadsheets. Moving towards No Neck, I saw him stare blankly at the sheet of paper. He couldn't read. Well, not English anyway. I got to him, and he handed it to me. Read it, he said. I scanned it for a second, and it sent my heart racing. Big news. It says... No. He cut me off. Read it. And so I did. After ten years of martial law, the people of Los Angeles have risen up and thrown off the shackles of the planned existence. Rebels have forced the National Guard and agents of the Protective Custody Administration beyond the Hollywood Hills. The prevailing belief is that these enforcement groups have withdrawn all the way back to Palm Springs. Interim government has received satellite footage of unfolding events from allies in the latest harbor drop and will release all material to the city's media outlets as it becomes available. This was the first and only time I saw the big thug emote, a move that constituted a half-inch raise of eyebrow and the question, Do you think that's true? I shrugged. Let's go find out. We moved away from the farm, where guards were already blasting bullets into the air to try to clear the street urchins that had opportunistically begun a harvest. Within minutes, there was a clear migration south towards Astor Place, which was essentially News Central as far as quarantine was concerned. As we headed south down Broadway, the crowd moving with us swelled from a creek into a river, finally depositing hundreds of us into Astor Place where thousands had already beat us to the punch. It was a sea of people, a real beast of a crowd, excited and anxious. Plus, it was getting hot. Even in the shade, the heat would beat you into a sweaty pulp. Things were particularly ugly because storm clouds had passed overhead without breaking open some rain. 
And now it was even hotter than before. And still, no one was leaving. Actually, more were feeding the beast from the back. And somewhere in front of us, on a little pedestal, sat the hundred square inches we were all hot for. The little TV playing the tape of the Los Angeles revolt of a few days before, looping over and over the satellite footage that would once and for all make us all believers in the wonderful news. This television was the prized possession of The Voice, which had been resurrected in the quarantine. Unlike The Post Times, The Voice was strictly a physical presence publication after the Lenapis cut their ink supply due to some unflattering stories. In many ways, this worked in their favors, with walls guarded by editors who approved articles to be pasted up, soapbox pundits hawking perspective to the crowd, and of course, the little television had brought the beast of squatters to heal. No way was I going to immerse myself in the crowd, knowing full well that No Neck would neither follow me in nor consent to hold my bag of fresh fruit, which was an unmanly pastel shade of blue. I told him to get us a bucket, find a hydrant, fill the bucket with water, and meet me on the prince side of the voice. The crowd was light there, just a few dozen people wandering from article to article, and I found an empty bench off to the side. The Voice articles offered the same fare as the Post Times, with a few conspiracy theories sprinkled in for good measure. One claimed Los Angeles had not had a revolt, that we were being fed a pretty falsehood to soften us up for a continental blow. No Neck returned with a bucket of water. We both drank from it and put a foot in it. And that's when I first laid eyes on Natalie. When I was sweaty and stinking badly, and my shirt was torn, and I had one foot in a bucket shared with my red-faced bodyguard. She had two packs strapped over her shoulders. Her white t-shirt was stained with sweat. Natalie stood before the voice of submissions desk. Next to her was a dapper old man named Bowman, a well-tailored seersucker suit and a wooden cane topped off with a wooden carving. I recognized him as someone I knew before quarantine. He'd been some kind of critic, maybe food, maybe art, and he had frequented my restaurants. Natalie was yelling, just beginning the harangue that would attract so much attention. The editor in charge of the submissions desk was named a sullen young man by the name Omar. He was fully wilted by his duties. He had a shaved head, deep-set, weary eyes that had clearly witnessed one too many scenes that hot afternoon. His thankless job was to protect the voice's wall from freelance cranks looking to self-publish. He was particularly vulnerable that day because the voice guards were busy protecting the TV. He looked positively morose now as Natalie and Bowman argued loudly in front of him. The old man was waving pages in Omar's face when Natalie snatched them away and held them over her head. She then addressed the editor in a full shout. Jesus, Omar, right now we've got slaves being traded in Chinatown, but you're going to put this pack of lies up instead? Bowman said. It's a scoop and she knows it. Natalie turned away from the old man and went to a proactive crouch, flipping open his article. Scoop, Bowman? What's this here? Two Lenape tankers are waiting out in the harbor for a signal? Really? How come my skyscraper scouts haven't seen a damn thing in the harbor? 
Natalie had already attracted a dozen spectators with her shouts, but now two dozen more turned up to this action. A hostile Anapi tanker anchored in the harbor was compelling stuff. Bowman wrapped Natalie on her calf with his cane, and she bent over to knock it away. The old man took advantage of that distraction to snatch back his article. He raised his chin, allowing him to take a long look down his nose at Natalie. My dear, no one likes radicals, not even other radicals. Omar said, Oh, for Christ's sakes, Bowman, fork it over. Natalie spun around to face the crowd. This was the first time I got a good look at her face. She had intelligent eyes and a hint of blush and a snub nose that saved her from being too aloof a beauty. But she had something more, too, the kind of commanding presence you can't fake. In this case, however, the commanding presence worked against her. Do you really want to read a patently false piece of crap about a Lenape coup? A shout came from a man back of the crowd. Yes! This was my thought exactly, and nearly everyone else, I'm sure. Do you really want rumor-mongering and lies? Another voice came. Shit, yes. Taste it. Public's right to know. Omar didn't need more than that. He snapped his fingers and summoned a boy carrying a bucket of paste and passed the article off to him. The boy raced over to the wall with Bowman's piece, the bucket swinging in his free hand. Did dark eyes give up? Had she suffered enough humiliation for the afternoon? Uh, not yet. She followed closely on the boy's heels. At one point, it even looked like she might overtake him, snatch the article back, and make a break for it. She caught me looking at her, which was, after all, the point of looking at her for such a long time. She pointed over the wall. What? You don't want to read the article. I removed my foot from the bucket, hobbled over to her bench, and sat down. You don't think it's true? Natalie said. Doesn't matter now, does it? It's pasted. The lie is alive and kicking. What lie? She rolled her eyes, shook her head, and returned her attention to her knee. Maybe you should read the article. No, dear. Maybe you should read it, came a voice from behind us. It was Bowman, wearing a perfectly smug grin. He loomed over Natalie, his bright blue eyes gleeful with the victory. Perhaps you'll see your error, Natalie said. Yeah, yeah, it's not for ready. Bowman was taken aback by her apathy, but he managed a forced laugh. All out of fight, I see. She rose and swung her packs on her shoulder. All out of it, Pop. She turned to me, reached into her knapsack, and handed me a sheaf of papers. Maybe you should read this instead. You're in a position to do something. How's that? You're governor, aren't you? She'd given me a ten-page tract about the system of mentorship, which was just a gentle word for slavery that flourished in Chinatown. I had no intention of reading the preachy sermon, but it thrilled me that she knew I was. The thrill was short-lived, though, because when I put my hand out, she did not meet it. Instead, Natalie gave me a tired nod and a weak smile that said, You're not that slick, slick. She managed a half-hearted wave and then limped away. I watched her move down 7th Street. Bowman just gave a derisive snort. Ugh, he's angry young women. He said, city's full of them. He was full of something, himself, maybe, or shit, perhaps, and I'd have liked to tell him that, but it just would have kept him around. Indeed, after a moment, he nodded to me, clicked his heels, and strolled off, his cane tapping the ground. They were both gone now, the two peas in the pod, the so-called adversaries. I tucked Natalie's articles in my shirt pocket and pushed myself into the little mob at the voice wall to get a closer look at the new piece. Jesus H. Christ. The Los Angeles revolt had prompted a putsch among the Lenapes. Holy crap. 
A rogue general was in negotiations with the Washington-based Heritage Foundation to turn the city over to the continent? Mother of fuck! The Lenapes were decamping and taking all their aid with them? But wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Of course, none of it's true. It's pure yellow journalism. Purple prose for the forever green masses. It was all a bunch of shocks to the system. Little bumps in the night that kept our endorphins going so we didn't fall into depression. But sitting there next to beefy no-neck, Astro Place writhing with bodies, my mind was less on Lenape tankers than a free Los Angeles. I watched Natalie slowly move towards the wall of the crowd and disappear therein. Even then, with barely a dozen words between us, I could feel it. Our futures were entwined. to The Decline and Fall of All Y'all, written and scored by Norm Cody and read by James G. Berry. This podcast is an unlimited liability production. For more information, visit declineandfall.us, where you will also find the soundtrack for the book recorded by the quarantine band Motorsoft. We love New York City. Long live New York City.